putting three people in a fiery furnace, and uh, there's four in there, and the king says one of them looks like a son of God, and he calls out to the three, and they come walking out. And they didn't even have the smell of the fire on them. Those lime kilns would get so hot that they would melt rocks. And yet, here are three people that came out of that. Well, there's another one, another miracle in chapter 6 of Daniel. I want to look at that briefly, and then I want to go to chapter 9. Chapter 6 talks about uh, Darius the Mede appointing 120 satraps. Now, these satrapies were kind of like uh, a governor of a land. And he had 120 sections that he wanted them to rule. And so he appointed 170 of these satraps uh, to rule. You can see that in the first verse of chapter 6. One of whom was Daniel. And the other 119 became jealous of Daniel because Daniel was the most highly thought of by the king. Daniel was also a man of integrity, so they couldn't find anything wrong with him. They tried and tried and couldn't find anything wrong. So finally they went to King Darius and sort of stroked his ego and said, uh, you need to pass a rule of the Medes and the Persians which can never be rescinded. I don't know if you've read uh, the book of Esther, but there's a rule there that, that is passed by the king uh, the rule is that all the Jews are to be killed. And that's when Esther, uh, beautiful Esther, comes in. And uh, she says, after she takes her life in her hands coming in, and he allows her to come on in, she says, I am a Jew, and my people are in danger of being killed. And he said, well, I can't rescind the law that the Jews can be killed, but I can also make another law that the Jews can fight. And so that's the Feast of Purim that the Jews still celebrate, uh, that the Jews were allowed to fight for themselves against uh, their killers, the people who would kill them. And the Jews... uh, were pretty uh, fanatical fighters. And so they ended up winning the day and saving their lives. Well, it's similar to this. Uh, These 119 satraps go into the king and say, O king, I want you to make a rule, a rule of the Medes and Persians that can never be changed, that Anyone who asks anything of anyone except for you for the next 30 days will be killed, thrown in the lion's den. And so uh, 
Daniel, who did what he always did, they could not find anything wrong with him, but he went and prayed toward Jerusalem, which means basically he's asking his God for blessing. And so these men all run back to the king and say, Daniel is doing this. Daniel asked his God instead of asking you. And the king was so frustrated by this because he didn't, he loved Daniel. He didn't want to hurt Daniel. But because he had made the law, he had to take Daniel to the lion's den. And the scripture says Daniel was thrown into the lion's den. Normally when that happens, you've seen how cats catch things in the air. Uh, These lions would catch a person on the way down and rip him to pieces. But in this case, when Daniel was put in the lion's den, uh, the king said, I hope that your God will save you. I know he's able to, but I hope that he will. And that night the king didn't sleep all night. And in the morning he went early to the place where he thought Daniel would be dead. And he called out to Daniel, Has your God been able to save you? And Daniel called out, O king, live forever. Uh, Which is a greeting for the king. And he said, uh, My God sent an angel to close the mouths of the lions, and they have not hurt me. And so he pulled Daniel up out of the den and found that he had not a scratch on him. And in his anger, King Darius went and took those 119 other satraps and their families and threw them in the lion's den. And the scripture says that the lions caught them in the air and crunched all their bones before they even hit the ground. Uh, what a horrible way to, to punish people, to treat people, to frighten people. But this is what they did. Uh, these kings had absolute power. They could do anything they wanted. And he uh, turned their homes into dunghills, and he was elated that Daniel was saved out of that situation. I want to go on and look now at, and there's a lot more to the story, but one of the most interesting phrases in the Aramaic text is it says that those men, those satraps, went to the king and ate their pieces of Daniel. That's obviously an an idiom. It's like we say, uh, uh, you chewed him out. You know, so that's our idiom for the same type of thing. They said they ate their pieces of Daniel. It's in there two times. Now, Daniel chapter 7, I've already talked to you about briefly. And that was the four beasts that come up out of the sea. The sea is human history. And the beasts are empires. So you know when you get to the book of Revelation that the beast is going to be an empire. And in the first century, that empire was Rome. 
And the description given in the book of Revelation fits with the description of Daniel chapter 7. A great beast with iron teeth that trampled everything. Uh, The Roman legions were so powerful. Now, if you go to chapter 7 with me, Uh, Look down in verse 15. After Daniel had seen all this authority, all this uh, stuff that was going on in his dream, he was troubled in spirit, and the visions that passed through my mind disturbed me. I approached one of those standing there in his vision and asked him the meaning of all this. He told me and gave me the interpretation of these things. The four great beasts are four kingdoms that will rise from the earth. But the saints of the Most High will receive the kingdom and possess it forever. Yes, forever and ever. So in the midst of the fourth kingdom, which is Rome, uh, the kingdom of God is established on earth. And we have this in several places in the Old Testament. Uh, uh, Isaiah chapter 2, for example. God's kingdom will be established in the midst of the fourth empire. And Daniel says this also uh, in Daniel chapter 2. You remember Nebuchadnezzar's vision, the rock smashing the statue. The rock grows and becomes a great mountain and fills the whole earth. And Daniel says that mountain, that word mountain means kingdom. So it's the kingdom of God being established during the Roman Empire. Okay, I want to go over to chapter 9. Chapter 9 is a pretty amazing chapter in, in Daniel. If you look at the first few verses, you'll see there that he says, Jeremiah the prophet said that the, the desolation of Jerusalem would last 70 years. Now, I hope you saw that. In Jeremiah, the false prophets said two years that the Jews would be taken to captivity in Babylon two years and Jeremiah said uh, no it's 70 years and a man came in wearing a wooden yoke a false prophet uh, named Hananiah came in wearing a wooden yoke and he told the king Jeremiah was there listening. He told the king, "This is going to be under, we're going to be under the yoke of Babylon only two years." Well, Jeremiah took the yoke off him and broke it, and said they're going to be under Babylon for seventy years. And so Hananiah went away and came back with an iron yoke. And so. Uh, Jeremiah simply said to Hananiah, just to prove who the true prophet is, you'll be dead within a year. And six months later, Hananiah died. You know, a true prophet has to be 100% accurate. Everything he says is 100% accurate. So Daniel has reached the end of the 70 years of captivity for the Jews. He knows they're about to be let go. They're about to be set free. And so he prayed, 
And you can look at this prayer. I recommend you read it, starting in verse 4 and going all the way down. If I can get my Bible open here. Through verse 19. At the end of this prayer, he says, O Lord, listen. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, hear and act. For your sake, O my God, do not delay, because your city and your people bear your name. So he wants the people to be sent back home. He says, While I was speaking and praying, confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel, and making my request to the Lord my God for his, for his holy hill, that is Jerusalem, while I was still in prayer, Gabriel, the man I had seen in the earlier vision, came to me in swift flight about the time of the evening sacrifice. It should be about six o'clock in the evening. Now, he's been praying a long prayer here. But Gabriel comes pretty quickly. There are four archangels in Judaism. I'm sure you know one of them is Michael. Michael is the archangel of Israel. He's the one who watches over Israel. Michael, by the way, means who is like God. Um... Gabriel means uh, warrior of God or man of God. And then there's Uriel, which means God is my strength, and Raphael, which means God heals. These are the four. In fact, there's a Jewish prayer. Uh, May Michael go before me. May Uriel and uh, Raphael be at my right and left hand, and may uh, Gabriel follow behind me. The scripture does say that the angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him. So you can be sure if you fear God and try to do what's right, turn away from evil, that's what fear means, fear of God. The definition of fear of God in the Bible is turning away from evil. And if you try to do that as a Christian, then certainly God has surrounded you with his angels. And so here is this Gabriel. This is the same angel <coughs> that 500 years later goes to Mary. Uh, first, he goes to Zechariah. You remember the story? John the Baptist's father. He's an old man. He's chosen to do the uh, work in the, in the temple in Jerusalem which basically means keeping the incense smoking and burning. That's the main job of the priest, to go in every day and do that. The priests were set up for a two-week program where they would take over for two weeks and do this work. And he was in there by himself, and all of a sudden Gabriel's there with him. And he was terrified. And Gabriel told him he was going to have a son in his old age, and he said, how can I know this? Gabriel said, well, you'll know it by not being able to talk for the next nine months until the boy is born, and you're to name him John, gift of God. So uh, this same Gabriel is the one that goes to Mary. He's the one that appeared earlier in Daniel. 
he apparently stands before God all the time. Jesus says that little children have angels that behold the face of God at all times. That little children are watched over by angels who see God all the time. You know, this tells me that little children are perfectly secure. They're safe. Uh, somebody asked me, give me a chapter and verse on that. And I said, well, you don't give a chapter and verse on something like that. It comes from knowing God. God would never throw away a child. In fact, Jesus said you need to become like a child in the kingdom. I think that's the humility and the teachability of children. So Daniel, he says... He instructed me and said to me, Daniel, I I have now come to you to, uh, to give you insight and understanding. As soon as you began to pray, an answer was given, which I have come to tell you, for you are highly esteemed. Therefore, consider the message and understand the vision. Seventy sevens are decreed to you. Seventy weeks. This is called the prophecy of the seventy weeks. How many years would that be? Yeah. So how many years? Seventy times seven. See, this is the day year in prophecy. So it's 490 years. And he says it's from the decree. I'm sorry? No, he says... (laughs) Well, he says 490 years from the decree to rebuild the temple, which is done under Cyrus. And so that was done in 456 or 7. So add 490 to this. So this is what the angel's telling, telling Daniel. He says, 77s are decreed. That means it's absolutely set by God for your people and your holy city to finish transgression, put an end to sin, to atone for wickedness, and bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the Most Holy One. Look at all the things that are going to happen at the end of this 490 years. The holy city will finish its transgression. It will put an end to sin at the end of this time. It will atone for wickedness. He is talking about the the crucifixion of Jesus. It will bring in everlasting righteousness. It will seal up vision and prophecy and anoint the most holy one. The word anoint there is Mashiach. The word Messiah. So he's talking about the Messiah. And then he goes on and says, 
No one understand this from the issuing of the decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until the anointed one, Messiah, the ruler, the prince, comes. There will be seven sevens and 62 sevens. So that's 69 sevens. He will rebuild the streets uh, and a trench, but in times of trouble. After the 62 sevens, the anointed one will be cut off and will have nothing. The people of the Kesha, the anointed one, the Messiah, will be killed. He goes on and says it'll, it'll happen in the middle of the week. So you've got the last week here. Take this from 490. And you have how many days? How many years? Is that correct? This is how old Jesus was when he died. What he's doing in this prophecy of the 70 weeks is giving us the exact date of the birth of Jesus, the exact date of the beginning of his ministry, and the exact date of his crucifixion. And when it says the last week, he'll be cut off in the middle of the week. If you've read those numbers that I gave you, they're over here on the table. The number three and a half always means catastrophe, means persecution. And here he's saying the Messiah will be cut off at the end of three and a half years. Jesus' ministry began September, October. That's when he was baptized by John. We know that because Luke tells us that Ahijah was the uh, group of prophets who were chosen when uh, John the Baptist's father was chosen. And that's very early. John was six months older than David. So, uh, than Jesus, I mean. So September, October, he begins his ministry. He goes to three Passovers. Only John records all three Passovers while Jesus is in his ministry. The Passover comes the second full moon of the Jewish New Year. Usually, you know how it is. It kind of bounces around in March and April because it's based on the lunar calendar of the Jews. The lunar calendar is a 28-day calendar. So every five years, they have to add four months to the calendar. In other words, they add a, a month to the calendar almost every year to keep it within that range uh, in, the, uh, in the solar calendar. So we, we can't really predict when it's going to be. Uh, we just, we, I mean, I'm sure somebody could, but uh, we don't know when the Passover is going to be because it's based on the second full moon. Jesus died the day before the Passover. Passover was on a Sabbath. Jesus died on Friday. 
He died probably sometime after three in the afternoon. The sky went dark. Remember that? From noon to 3 p.m., which is usually the brightest part of the day. This is not an eclipse. You can't have an eclipse when you have a full moon. Here's the sun. Here's the earth. Here's the moon. If you have a full moon, the sun is beating directly on that moon. So you can't have an eclipse. The only way you can have an eclipse on earth is for the moon to be in between here, you see? So this three hours of darkness, I think, is just because the Creator was dying. I think the sun just went out. There's no explanation for it. They felt it over all the earth. And they know it was not an eclipse of the, of the sun. Because you have a full moon, it has to be opposite the earth. You could have a lunar eclipse, perhaps, but you could never have a solar eclipse. All right, so Jesus went through three Passovers. He died on Friday, right before the Passover. Uh, two guys took him down from the cross. Remember who those two guys are? The guy who went to the tomb, Joseph of Arimathea, and Nicodemus. Together they took Jesus down and buried him in Joseph's tomb, and they didn't even have time to put spices on the body. That's, that was what they learned to do in Egypt. The Jews learned from the Egyptians how to, how to mummify a body. They would start with several different kinds of spices. Nobody, nobody believed there was going to be a resurrection. The guys on the road to Emmaus said, we had hoped that he would be the one to save Israel. We had hope means they don't hope anymore because they saw him die. And so the women are on their way to the tomb on Sunday morning. What are they going to do? Put spices on the body. Nobody's thinking in terms of resurrection. When they get there, they are shocked. And you remember, I love the fact that it's women who are the first witnesses to the resurrection. In that day, women were not even allowed to be on a jury. They were not allowed to give testimony. And so when these women ran to the, to the disciples and told them what had happened, that his body is gone and we don't know where they put him, they're still thinking he's dead. It's just amazing to me that the biggest shock in the New Testament is the resurrection. Nobody believed it. Only Jesus. No one takes my life from me. I lay my life down. Nobody talked like this. Only Jesus. And if I lay it down, I can take it up again. Talk about power. Three Passovers, and then 
He's raised from the dead right after the Passover. He died right before it, was raised from the dead right after it. Went into Galilee. The angels told them to go to Galilee to meet Jesus. There are exactly ten, you can count them, appearances of Jesus after his resurrection. But all of this is predicted right here in Daniel. He's cut off in the middle of the week. His, his ministry was three and a half years. The last three and a half, we don't know what that is except three and a half is a number for tragedy and persecution. It's an amazing story. It's an amazing story that we believe, isn't it? You stop to think about this. Daniel not only gives us the date of his birth, he gives us the length of his life and the, the length of his ministry. He, he actually lived to be 33 and a half. And then after he arose from the dead, there's 40 days. Forty days that he showed himself to be alive. And then only Luke tells us that Jesus ascended into heaven. Matthew, Mark, and Luke don't mention it. I mean, Matthew, Mark, and John don't mention it. Only Luke tells us this. At the end of his gospel and at the beginning of the book of Acts, he wrote both those books. And there he talks about Christ ascending and a cloud hiding, uh, hiding Jesus from their sight. And then Daniel takes over in chapter 7. He says, I saw one like a son of man riding in the clouds and coming up to the Ancient of Days. So here is this amazing prediction of the exact length of Jesus' ministry, the exact date of his birth, the exact date of his death, predicted, sent to us by the angel Gabriel directly from God. Now, this is part of the reason that some of the scholars just don't believe Daniel. They think Daniel was written after the event because he is so detailed. But the evidence is that all this goes way back before Christ was born. But he's a, he has amazing, amazing ability uh, that God gave him because of his commitment to God. After 62 sevens, the anointed one will be cut off and have nothing. The people of the ruler who will come to destroy the city and the sanctuary, the end will be like a flood. The war will continue until the end and desolations have been decreed. He will confirm a covenant. Who he? Who's he? The Messiah. He will confirm a covenant with many for one seven. In the middle of the seven, he will put an end to the sacrifice and offering. In other words, 
Jesus' death on the cross finishes all sacrifice. Now, there are many other sacrifices that were offered. But they, those sacrifices, the blood of bulls and goats, can never take away sin. It took Jesus' sacrifice to take away sin. He set up, he will set up the abomination that causes desolation. Anybody know what that is? Originally, it was a man named Antiochus Epiphanes who tried to destroy Judaism in the second century BC. He tried to force them to burn all their Bibles. And uh, he uh, took a sow into the temple and sacrificed a sow on the altar of incense and spread its blood all over the temple and forced the Jewish people to eat pig's flesh. And uh, in the scripture, that's like eating dung in the Old Testament. That, that's the original Antiochus Epiphanes who destroyed the temple. It took him years to clean it out after that and uh, to fight him and to get him to leave their area. Uh, if you've read about the Maccabees, you know about that war that took place. Well, what he's referring to here is the second abomination that causes desolation. And that was the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 A.D. The Romans came, besieged Jerusalem for three and a half years. I told you about uh, the essential Josephus. If you get that book uh, by Paul Meyer, uh, the book ends with the destruction of Jerusalem, and he goes into great detail about what happened how Jerusalem was destroyed. There was a runner who came from Vespasian, the emperor of Rome, to bring a message to his son Titus, who had conquered Jerusalem. And he said, please don't burn the temple. I want to see it. It's supposedly one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. But the fire was already going. Remember what Jesus predicted about the temple in Matthew 24 and Mark 13? Not one stone will be left on another. The reason for that is that the gold of the temple melted in the fire and ran in between all the stones of the temple, and the only way the Romans could get the gold out was to separate the stones from the stones. There wasn't one stone literally left on another of the temple. So that's the second abomination of desolation. And that's what Daniel's referring to here. 70 A.D. destruction of... This the end of Judaism. You know, they're still Jews, but they can't fulfill their law. They can't offer sacrifice for their sins anymore. There is no temple. It's been destroyed since 70 A.D., and there's no indication that it's ever going to be rebuilt. The second largest holy place of Islam is built over the Temple Mount and blankets the Temple Mountain. 
the second holy place, second holiest place of um, the Muslims, is the Mosque of Omar on the, the Temple Mountain in Jerusalem. There's very little chance that that temple will ever be replaced. I know there are people who want that to happen, but I don't see any evidence it's going to happen. When Jerusalem was destroyed, Josephus, a great Jewish scholar, a general of the army, was asked by Vespasian, Vespasian again is Titus's father. Titus is the general who conquered Jerusalem. Have any of you ever looked up the Arch of Titus online? I recommend you do that. If you look closely, you will see on the Arch of Titus in bas-relief a sculpture of Jews carrying the Torah, carrying the seven-pronged candlestick of Moses, and coming into Rome as conquered people. And the Roman soldiers in this bas-relief on the front of the Arch of Titus, you can look it up online and see the pictures. The Roman soldiers are standing in the background with whips in that picture. It's called the Arch of Titus because Titus is the one that conquered Jerusalem. He's the one that brought the Jews into captivity in Rome. Titus didn't reign very long. His father had reigned much longer than he did. But at least he has this arch in his honor in downtown Rome. It's been there for many years. You can drive your car several cars abreast underneath that thing. It's so huge. The Romans knew how to build. That thing's over 2,000 years old. Doesn't look like it's ever going to come, come apart. Romans have always known how to build. Build roads, aqueducts, buildings. All right. Any questions on that? I don't want to spend much more time on it, but I can answer any questions you have. No, Michael, Michael is the archangel of the Jews, uh, of Israel. He's just one of the four archangels. He's apparently the messenger angel because he does a lot of answering questions. And you, yes, ma'am. The Prince of Persia, chapter 10. Uh, he was a demonic being that was in the way when Gabriel was sent to meet Daniel and answer his question in Daniel chapter 10. It's about spirit warfare. Prince of Persia? No. But he has apparently many demonic beings. You know, uh, the angels who, who uh, rejected God are the demons. And so here are the demonic beings standing in the way of Gabriel. Now, Gabriel's a powerful angel. 
But he's not as powerful, apparently, as, as Michael. And when he said, I had, to, I had to fight against the prince of Persia and his minions until Michael came and freed me from him, and now I've come to you, but when I leave you, I must go back and fight with Michael against these demonic beings. Uh, this is a look at real spiritual warfare. Read the 10th chapter. It's worth reading. Uh, I talked about it on Sunday morning, uh, chapter 9 and 10. But chapter 9, he prays maybe three and a half, four minutes, and gets an angel just like that. But in chapter 10, he prayed for 21 days, praying and fasting. He said, I did not wash. I did not eat. I prayed until the angel came. And again, the angel came in swift flight, coming out of the spirit room, uh, glowing like he'd just come out of a furnace. That's how the angels look when they are, are fighting like that. Any other questions on that? Chapter 12, I want to look at this. And Michael, the archangel Michael was mentioned only four times in the entire Bible. He's mentioned twice in Daniel, once in the little book of Jude in the New Testament, which is Jesus' younger half-brother, and then... He's mentioned also in Revelation chapter 12. It's the only places Michael's mentioned. But his name is Mikael, who is like God. And so he's a very powerful angel. And so chapter 12 says, At that time Michael, the great prince who protects your people, will arise. The great prince. See, here's where an angel is called a prince, just like the prince of Persia was called a prince. He's just a negative one. Micah's a positive one. This will be a time of distress such as not happened from the beginning of the nations until now. But at that time, your people, everyone who is found written in the book, will be delivered or saved. Multitudes who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake. There's no question that Daniel understood resurrection. Some to everlasting life, some to shame and everlasting contempt. Those who are wise will shine like the brightness of the heavens. Paul says we will shine like the stars of the universe. And those who lead many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. But you, Daniel, close up and seal the words of the scroll until the time of the end. Many will go here and there and increase knowledge. And what's happening in our day? Knowledge is being greatly increased. I'm not sure anymore how quickly recorded knowledge doubles. It's something like three years the last I saw. But knowledge itself doubles more often than that. It's just not recorded. 
So when he says knowledge will increase, uh, he's talking about what's happening right now. And he also says here that many will go here and there. King James says many will go to and fro. I think of people getting on planes in Boston and going to L.A. and back. You know, so many uh, travel, go here and there, and increase knowledge. He says, Then I, Daniel, looked, and there before me were two others, on the bank of the river and the other on the opposite bank. One of them said to the man clothed in linen, who was above the waters of the river, these are obviously angelic beings, one on each side of the river and one above the middle of the river. He says, uh, how long will it be before these astonishing things are fulfilled? And the man in linen who was above the water of the river raised his right hand and his left hand toward heaven, and I heard him swear by him who lives forever and ever, saying it will be for a time, times, and half a time. Three and a half. If you want to see all four of the images for three and a half, go to the 11th chapter of Revelation. Forty-two months, three and a half years, time and times and half a time, 1,280 days. So what he's doing here is taking the last three and a half of the week and saying that's how long the end of the world is going to take. It's going to be tragedy and persecution. And I told you already this week that I just read recently that 322 Christians per day are being murdered because of their faith. More, more martyrs this century than all previous 20 centuries. Skip over to verse 11. From the time that the daily sacrifice is abolished and the abomination that causes desolation is is, uh, set up. In other words, from the time the sacrifice stops and the abomination is set up, that is the destruction of the temple in 70 A.D., there will be 1,290 days. Blessed is the one who waits for and receives the end of 1,335 days. So this is why Daniel was bothered by this stuff. He couldn't understand it. He's not alone. I don't understand that. It just says, stay past the three and a half. Keep your faith in the three and a half and through that difficult time. And then the angel says, As for you, go your way till the end. You will rest, and then at the end of days you will rise to receive your allotted inheritance. They could have told us the same thing, couldn't they? You will rest, you will die, you will be buried, and as he says here, All the dwellers of the dust will rise. We will rise. Just as Jesus uh, raised Lazarus from the dead, 
You know, he'd been dead four days. That means his body was breaking down, rotting. And Jesus called him back. If he hadn't said, Lazarus, come forth, if he had just said, come forth, the whole graveyard would have got up. See, that's what's going to happen in the future. He's going to raise everybody from the sea and from the land. My view of, uh, of what happens at death is this. The body and the spirit separate. Jesus said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. So it's the spirit that lives on. The spirit is who we are. The spirit is our mind and our thoughts and our personality. That will live on and go back to God. The body will go back to the devil. You know, Satan, the serpent, was told by God, you will eat dust all the days of your life, and we are dust. And so he gets our bodies. And we will go first to a place called paradise where Jesus met the thief. And uh, it will be a place of beauty, a place uh, paradise. The word means a garden or a park. And that's where we'll be. And then when Jesus is ready to return, when the Father tells him when to go back, he will come and get us and take us with him and give us new bodies raised from the dead, bodies that will never, ever die again. Immortal, eternal. When you think about it, Jesus called us gods in John chapter 10. And he said, the scripture cannot be broken. We are divine beings. We just can't see what we are on the inside. You know, thank you for putting up with me this week. I've been so miserable. I've been sick. Uh, Up until tonight, I haven't felt well at all. But I'm starting to feel good right now. That's what I say. Thank God. I hate being sick. I mean, I'm almost never sick. It doesn't happen. Paul will tell you. Haven't been for years. And then all of a sudden, two times in about a month. What the deal is. I got an appointment with the doctor Friday at 11 o'clock, so we'll see what happens there. But thank you for putting up with me, and uh, thank you for paying attention. And, And Do you have any questions before this whole thing is over? He did the Passover meal on Thursday. He did it early. He said, with great desire, I have wanted to eat this Passover with you. And that's when he established the Lord's Supper, to replace the Passover meal with God's people. And I don't know if I've told you this, but the Passover bread was originally made as triangles. Did you all know this? See, today they make them round or square. But back then they were triangles because the triangle was a symbol for God. Uh, You may have seen the way they stacked them, three of them on top of each other, 
makes the Morgan David. And when the pre, the, it, well, that's what it's called, the, the, the shield of David or the, the that's what it is. Morgan, or, Morgan means shield. And when the high priest blessed the people, he would bless them like this. You've seen this on fate on Star Trek. That that's because Leonard Nimoy and uh, and uh, William Shatner are both Jewish, and they know this symbol. It's a symbol of the Hebrew letter Shin, which means shalom, means peace. And so the the high priest would bless the people by this, because the, he would call the name Yahweh on them three times. Yahweh bless you and keep you. Yahweh lift up his face upon you. Yahweh turn his countenance upon you and give you peace. There's shalom, see? And Yahweh, 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 the triangle. God's nature is three. On the back of a dollar bill, you look at that, it was, de- it was designed by a Jew named Chaim Shalomo back in the 1700s. And he puts all this Jewish symbolism on there. Look it up online. Look up the back of the dollar bill. You'd be amazed at all the stuff that's on there. But the triangle on the dollar bill at the bottom left is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. At the bottom right is the tree of knowledge, uh, the tree, uh, I'm sorry, of a life. And then if you go to the other side, you got to get out your dollar bill and take a look. You've got uh, the uh, 13 colonies like the 13 tribes of Israel, shaped in a star of David. Um, the, the Shekinah glory surrounds it, the glory of God, and then a cloud around that so you can't see it, you can't see God. And uh, if you look at the eagle, you'll see that in his right talons, he has 13 fig leaves. In his left, he has 13 arrows. In his right hand, he has peace. In his left hand, he has war. And if you... I wish we all had dollar bills. I'd show you this, but you don't need to get into that. But there were three of these. Three triangular-shaped... Uh, unleavened breads put on top of each other and the middle one the one that goes the other way is the one they take out and break this is what Jesus would have broken when he said this is my body which is broken for you these things are pierced with a fork and striped with a fork that's how his body was see he can say this is my body pierced and striped broken for you Fascinating to me. Yes. A swastika. Yeah, based on the cross. No, uh, but it is an ancient symbol. But it's, that's why uh, it was picked up by Hitler. You know, 
What Hitler did was nothing new. He just he was carrying out evolution, the teaching of Darwin, the survival of the fittest. Yeah. Anything else? All right. Thank you. Let's say a prayer, okay? You got one. Look at the back of it. Well, let's pray together. Father, thank you for giving us your word. Thank you for the prophet Daniel who has taught us so much. I pray that you will speak to us through the word and through your spirit that we may be more like you, that we may be holy, even as you are holy. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Verse 10. I don't remember which verse. That's my favorite scripture. No. Uh, it goes like this. Jesus has made perfect forever all those who are becoming holy. See, we're in process becoming holy, but he's already made us perfect. So God sees us as perfect. We see ourselves as improving. Okay. Thank you all.